Good afternoon, and let me add my welcome to Johnny's. My name's John T, and it's a great joy to be able to open up the Bible and to share God's Word with you this afternoon. And in particular, um, as we dive into this book of Hosea, we'll spend the next few weeks exploring this remarkable Old Testament prophet. And I, I say it's remarkable because this book gives us a glimpse into the very heart of God. It reveals to us something of God's nature, and in particular, it reveals to us the way that God relates to his people. What is that relationship like? We're going to discover that it is a relationship of beautiful faithfulness. And so we're going to spend six weeks kind of digging around and exploring that in the book of Hosea. And then we're going to take another six weeks to apply what we learn from Hosea to our relationships with one another. How do we relate to one another within a church family? What does faithfulness in our relationships look like? How could we take what we've learned from God's relationship with us and think about how that applies to one another? So that's where we're heading um, for the next term. And I trust and pray that God has much to teach us and to reveal to us as we explore his word. But why don't we pray, and then we're going to read um, from Hosea chapter 1. Heavenly Father, please would you help us this afternoon. Please remove all distractions. And we ask that our hearts this afternoon would be turned towards you. Lord, please would you teach us what you want us to know. Please would you show us what you want us to see. And please would you help us to respond in worship and wonder and love. Lord, please help us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Great, well, let's read Hosea chapter 1. If you've got a Bible, definitely worth having it open in front of you so you can follow um, what's going on. But Hosea chapter 1, we're going to start at verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman, and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she'd weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. 
the people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. The big idea that you keep meeting in the book of Hosea, and we're going to hit this idea again and again and again in the coming weeks, is the idea of covenant. In the pages of Hosea, we are going to meet the God who is unfailingly and unswervingly loyal to the promises that he has made. And the remarkable thing about God's faithfulness is that it is not dependent upon the faithfulness of the people. No, God remains faithful even in the face of supreme unfaithfulness. That's what God's covenant faithfulness looks like. God has made a promise and he will not break it. God has made a marriage vow and he will not forsake it. This is how God has chosen to relate to his people on the basis of a covenant. And that theme of covenant, it's not just Hosea, it runs right the way through the whole story of the Bible. God is faithful. And so you get these moments when it looks like all is lost, when the people have been so wicked. Like when Adam and Eve first sin against God, or when the whole world turns against him in Noah's day. Or as we're going to see in the book of Hosea, the unfaithfulness of Israel, and it looks like there is no hope. This must be the end. That, that, that it's over. And then you get a but. You get a, you get a moment. And it's always a moment of covenant faithfulness. A moment that is motivated by God's unswerving loyalty to his promises. And the covenant faithfulness of God changes everything. The covenant faithfulness of God overwhelms and envelops the human failure and unfaithfulness. That's what you see again and again. And that's what you see in the book of Hosea. God's covenant faithfulness, even in the face of supreme unfaithfulness. Now, the reason this is going to be important for us, and we're going to dive into the, the, the chapters in a minute, but the reason this is important is because we often perceive of God as quite different to this. We live in a world, and, and by nature, our hearts tend towards a transactional view of relationships where someone makes demands of me and I meet those demands to get what I want. It's the sort of relationship I have with my broadband supplier. They make a demand of me. They demand some money from me. I pay them that to get my broadband. It's the same relationship I have with a god called Tesco. They say, give me 99p, I'll give you a cheese roll. I say, great, I'll have a cheese roll. If I don't give them the 99p, I don't get the cheese roll. It's a transactional relationship. Demands need to be met. And many people perceive that that must be what God is like. When people begin to think about God, they imagine he must be the great demand maker in the sky. So I look at my crops and they failed, and I think I must have offended the, the sun god or the rain god, and so I think I need to 
meet their demands. I need to offer a sacrifice to placate them and to make them happy so that they'll then give me good crops. And this is the sort of air that we breathe. So many of our relationships and so much of the way our world works is on this demand sort of basis, transaction. I I want you to picture it. It's like an umbrella. We live under an umbrella of demands. And many of us find that really crushing. But when we come to God, we discover something very different. You see, when the God who created this world decided how he would relate to his people, he did not choose to relate to us on the basis of demand and reward. Instead, he chose to relate to us on the basis of a covenant. God has made a promise, a promise that he will not break. God has said, I will. God has taken a people to be his very own, yet to be his bride. You read of that story in the Old Testament. You read of God coming to a man called Abraham. And God saying, I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will. I will. And that covenant promise that God made to Abraham was then for Israel, which was then to spread to the whole world. This is how God works. He's made a promise that he will not break. And so even in the face of supreme unfaithfulness, God stays loyal. That's what we're going to see in the book of Hosea. And it should give us great security. It will help us to see God as he truly is and to relate to him as he truly is. And in these first couple of chapters of Hosea that we're going to try and get through um, this afternoon, we're going to see those two things. Here are the two things we're going to see. The appalling reality of unfaithfulness. We have to deal with the fact that to be unfaithful to God is an appalling thing. But the second thing we're going to see is the overwhelming reality of God's covenant. So we're going to see that in chapter 1, then we're going to see it again in chapter 2. Both of these chapters have a, a covenant moment in them. When the covenant love of God overwhelms the human unfaithfulness of the people. So be watching out for that. But let's, let's get into it. Let's have a look. We're, we're told that the time in which Hosea is speaking, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. So by this time, God's people, Israel, have split into two. There's Israel in the north and there's Judah in the south. And, and Hosea is particularly going to speak to Israel in the north, also called Ephraim, where we're told Jeroboam is the king. Now, from the book of two kings, we know that at this point, Israel in the north is very prosperous and successful and strong, but is also evil. That's a dangerous combination, isn't it? To be evil and successful 
is a very dangerous combination. Because you convince yourself that there's nothing wrong. If everything's going well, if your life is going smoothly, and if you seem strong and successful, then you must be okay. Well, certainly Israel in the north, they looked to be doing well. In fact, they looked much stronger than Judah in the south. There was a lot more of them for a start. And there was this time in two kings when Judah in the south for some reason decided they were going to pick a fight with Israel in the north and they said to him, hey, let's have a battle. And Israel said to them, sorry, Judah, you're like a thistle. We're a cedar tree. You're a thistle. We will trample on you. And Judah said, well, we're going to fight you anyway. And Israel defeated them because they're too weak. So you have this nation which is doing evil and yet is successful. And so what God does is he sends this man Hosea to wake up his people, to speak to his people, to show them their unfaithfulness. And the first thing he tells them to do is really odd, isn't it? Have a look at verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Goma, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. You see, Hosea is told to go and act out a marriage. No, he's not told to go and act it out. He's told to go and get married for real. And he's told to enter into a marriage that will lead to pain, grief, and suffering. The the word um, that in English is translated promiscuous is actually a lot stronger than that. He's told to go and marry a prostitute, a whore, an adulteress, a woman who is notoriously unfaithful. She will not be faithful to Hosea. She will chase off after other lovers to get payment from them. But Hosea is to love her, to marry her. Imagine him going to see her father, Diblaim. Diblaim, I'd like to marry your daughter. Uh, and he says, are you sure? Do you know what she's like? Hosea says, yeah, yeah, I know what she's like. But I love her. And I want to marry her. I mean, imagine the wedding day. Imagine Hosea. Hosea, do you take this woman to be your wife? Will you take this woman to be your wife? Will you love her? Forsaking all others, will you be faithful to her? Imagine him looking into her eyes, knowing what it's going to cost him. Knowing the pain and the grief and the tears and the suffering that he will experience if he utters those next two words. And knowing all that it's going to cost, he says, I will. He loves her. He desires her. And so he marries her. Perhaps she's already looking across the room, flirting with the other blokes. 
Perhaps her fingers are crossed as she makes vows that she has no intention to keep. Why would God ask Hosea to do that? Well, because that is exactly what God has done with his people. He has married his people even though he knows that they will be unfaithful. God knew that his people would not be loyal to him. God knew the suffering and the grief and the pain that it would cost. And yet God said, I will. And Hosea and Gomer are to be a picture of God and his people. Here is covenant faithfulness. But it is appalling, the unfaithfulness. So look what happens next. We're told about their family. It's a devastating family. They have a son. The Lord tells him to call him Jezreel. I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel in that day. I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Jezreel might not sound that much to us, but for Israel, Jezreel is like a town that is infamous. It was the site of a massive slaughter that was carried out by Jehu, a previous king. The people have been unfaithful to God and God will punish them. Gomer conceives again, they have a daughter, call her low room heart, means not loved. Hosea is to call his daughter not loved. Can you think of a more agonizing name for a father to call their child? Not loved. Why? Because God says, I will not show love to Israel anymore. He's not yet finished with Judah. He still has more work to do. He says he's going to save them. I think even that is partly to humble Israel. You know, weak little Judah, I'm going to save them, but not you, Israel. And then they have another son, Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. We, we have to hear these words for the devastating reality. The unfaithfulness of the people in turning to other gods, in rejecting the God who's made covenant promises to them. The unfaithfulness of Israel has led to this point where God now says to them, you are not my people and I am not your God. That was the heart of the covenant Back in the days of Moses, that was it. God said, you are my people and I will be your God. That was what God promised them. And now he seems to have revoked the covenant. The unfaithfulness of the people is that serious. We mustn't mess around with this. It isn't that when people are unfaithful to God, he just shrugs his shoulders and goes, oh, that's a shame. Don't be naughty. No, unfaithfulness takes God to the very point of breaking the covenant. It takes God to the very point of revoking his own promises. And it looks like all is lost. Unfaithfulness is appalling in what it does. 
but you know what's coming, right? You see, you, you always know what's coming. When all is lost and there is no hope, covenant love kicks in. And so the appalling reality of unfaithfulness is met by the overwhelming reality of God's covenant. And so listen to what we read in verse 10. Yet, yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. Do you you feel it? Do you feel the, the... The moment, the covenant moment, when God's overwhelming faithfulness kicks in and overwhelms the unfaithfulness of the people. He's just said to them, I'm going to put an end to the kingdom of Israel. And then he says, but the Israelites are going to be as many as the sand on the seashore. You see, here's the deal. God made a promise. He made a promise with Moses to be the people's God, but he made a promise with Abraham that his descendants would be as many as the sand on the seashore, and God doesn't go back on his promises. And so despite the unfaithfulness of the people, the faithfulness of, the people, of God overwhelms. And so those children's names are all reversed. Not my people, you're now called my people. Not my loved one, you're now called my loved one. And Jezreel becomes not a place of shame and horror, but a place of victory and hope. This is what the covenant faithfulness of God does in the face of supreme unfaithfulness. But let's kick into chapter 2. Because we're going to see this again. We're going to see exactly the same pattern again. I just want you to see that this is how the book of Hosea works. And we're going to be confronted again with the covenant, with the unfaithfulness, the appalling reality of unfaithfulness among the people. And this is graphic. These are graphic words. And they're supposed to shock us. Because we treat sin too lightly. We treat unfaithfulness to God as if it's no big deal. But actually, God shows us what unfaithfulness really means. So prepare yourself. This is, this is not easy words. But let's read and listen to what we are told. Hosea chapter 2, verse 2. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her. Now this may be Hosea speaking to his children, but it's more likely... God telling the faithful Israelites to to talk to Israel. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she's not my wife and I'm not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn into parched land and slay her with thirst. 
I will not show my love to her children because they're the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take away my corn when it ripens and my new wine when it's ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewellery and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, declares the Lord. Now this is heart language. And we need to be careful as we listen to this. Because there may be moments when we find ourselves thinking, oh, this sounds like God is being a bit too harsh. And we must not picture God as some mean and brutal man mistreating his wife. No, the point here is that unfaithfulness is appalling. What Gomer does is awful. What Israel does is awful. She's committed adultery. And I want to be really sensitive here. I want to be gentle because I realise that for some of us this is not just a theoretical thing. For some of us this, we've known this in our own relationships and families. The pain, the experience of unfaithfulness. And if you've ever experienced that, if you know anything of that, well, God agrees that it's appalling. God agrees that it's a terrible thing. But let's look at what's happened. She's abandoned her husband to chase off after other lovers. She's gone after others. Others notice who operate in the demand umbrella. You see, these other gods that she's chased after, the other gods that Israel has gone after, they're not in a covenant relationship. They have to pay. She goes after her other lovers. So she has to pay them in order to get wine and, and food and water from them. She chases after them to get stuff from them. Never realizing that it was actually God who gave her all that stuff in the first place. Do you see the tragedy? Do you see the appalling reality of unfaithfulness? that we would run after other lovers and abandon the very God who's promised to love us. That we would seek what God alone could give us from anything or anyone 
else. It is a terrible thing. She's been unfaithful. And so God says he will punish her. He will take away her wine. She will, he will take away the clothes intended to cover her naked body. Now let, let, let me just say this very clearly. This is not an abusive relationship. This is not God abusing Israel. This is God exposing Israel to shame so that they will see what they've done. You see, remember, the trouble is they're being successful, so they don't see the problem. They don't see their need. They don't see the danger. And so God says, I will take all of that stuff away so that you will see that your other lovers are not the ones who are providing for you. This is the tragic reality of being unfaithful to God. As soon as you leave the God of covenant love, you run after other gods who will just make demands of you, who will exploit you, and who will leave you with nothing. You run after other gods, other things that you think are going to satisfy you, other things that you think are going to fulfill you, that you think are going to make you happy, while all the time it is the covenant God who alone is faithful, the covenant God who alone loves you despite what you do. And yet all too often we just place ourselves under the umbrella of demands, demands of a career, Demands of success, demands of money, demands of all these gods that we love so much that occupy our thinking that we would run after rather than finding our home with the covenant God who made us. Look, unfaithfulness to God is it's an appalling reality. We really should be shocked. We should be shocked at the way that Israel treated God. We should be shocked at the ways that we have treated God. And she does in verse 7 say, I'll go back to my husband. I was better then than I am now. But even at that point, she's going back not to the covenant relationship, but in a sort of transactional way. Maybe that's the best option for me. And God wants his bride back in covenant faithfulness. And so God says, yes, I will punish her. I will expose her. I'll ruin her vines and her fig trees. I will punish her because she forgot me. The appalling unfaithfulness of the people. But you know what's coming next? What has to come next is the overwhelming reality of God's covenant. So here it comes in verse 14. Therefore, I'm now going to allure her. And you're like, well, hang on a second. Where does that come from? You've just said, I'm going to punish her. I'm going to punish her. I'm going to expose her. I'm going to remove all this stuff. Therefore, I'm going to allure her. Why? Because God's the God of covenant love. And his overwhelming covenant faithfulness swamps and overcomes the unfaithfulness of the people. I'm going to allure her. And you get this beautiful love song. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. I'll give her back her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. God says, she's going to love me again. 
In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You'll no longer call me my master. You see, no longer a transactional relationship of demands. Master, master. No, a a covenant relationship. Husband, husband. That's how she'll respond. I'll remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. You see, it's God's covenant that is going to transform her. He doesn't say, you've got to sort yourself out. He says, I'm going to allure you. I'm going to transform you. Covenant love transforms the unfaithful people to be his bride. In that day, verse 18, I'll make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all of you may lay down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I'll betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine and the olive oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I'll say to those called, not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. This is it. That's it. That's the overwhelming reality of God's covenant. God does not abandon his people even though they are so unfaithful to him. And this is God's great promise, to take an unfaithful people and to transform them to become his beautiful bride. And this is the message, this is the overarching story of the covenant faithfulness of God. This is what God does. He takes this unfaithful people and they do go into exile and they suffer. They are punished by God, but God then brings them out because when Jesus comes, Jesus comes to establish the new covenant. And in the coming of Jesus, Jesus takes unfaithful people and he transforms them to become God's faithful bride. Jesus takes people who love other gods, who worship the Baals, who cry out to other gods, and Jesus takes us and he removes those names from our lips so that we might become his faithful people. It's Jesus who goes to a cross, who is stripped naked and exposed and ashamed as he takes the punishment for our unfaithfulness. It's Jesus who overwhelms all of our unfaithful failures. It's Jesus who ultimately brings light and hope to an unfaithful people. So look, we we need to finish. This book of Hosea, it introduces us to the God of covenant faithfulness. I wonder when you think of God, Do you view him as a God who makes demands of you? Do you live under his demands? Got to do this, got to do this, got to do this. Or or do you live in that covenant relationship where God says, I love you. I, I will always love you. Unswervingly and unfailingly, I love you. I, I will be faithful to you even in your unfaithfulness. And I sent my son to make you my bride. In the book of 1 Peter, and I want to finish with this, when Peter's writing, Peter picks up these words of Hosea 
and, uh, and Peter uh, uses them, and I'm sure you'll recognize what he's saying as I read them. It says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. To be one of God's children means to be in a covenant relationship with God. He will be faithful. His overwhelming faithfulness, even when we mess up, he's faithful. Why don't we praise him and worship him as we pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are faithful. Thank you that you never let us down. Lord, we're so sorry for our unfaithfulness. We're sorry for those times when we chase other gods. We're sorry when we look for meaning and joy and life away from you. Lord, we ask that we would delight to be your covenant people. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that in him you have made this covenant faithfulness, this relationship possible. We praise you in his name. Amen. Amen.